Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Taras Cusio from the Henry Jackson Society. Dr. Cusio wrote a great book called Putin's War Against Ukraine. So on this episode, we take a look at the background to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me today. Can you, just for the benefit of listeners, just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. I'm uh, born in. I was born in God's own own county, God's own country. Um, which, for those who don't know where that is, that's Yorkshire, of uh, mixed Ukrainian father and Italian mother. Quite a common and typical mix, actually, in Britain. Because after World War Two, a lot of Ukrainian men, just like a lot of Polish men, arrived because they were from militaries or. They were slave laborers like my dad in Nazi Germany. Um, and there weren't many Polish-Ukrainian women, so they, they tended to marry usually other immigrants. And uh, because uh, they were Catholics, though, they, a lot of them married Italians and, and Austrians, actually. Um, so in my hometown in, of Halifax, in West Yorkshire, there was a lot of Italian-Ukrainian uh, marriages. Um, so... At the age of 18, I went to university in Sussex, then London, and then finally PhD at Birmingham University. So all my education was in Britain, and I've been covering the former USSR, then the USSR in the 80s, um, and that region, Russia, Eurasia, Ukraine, been covering it since about the mid-80s. So quite a long time. So it's interesting to see that history has come full circle with Putin. Yeah, indeed. Let's um, kick off. Why did Putin invade Ukraine? Well, there are a couple of probably big reasons. Um, and, it, and, and, and these are complicated issues, which I think many mm. people are asking this question. Why now? What's going on? You know, I think a lot of people are very confused by, by this because, they didn't, because there wasn't really a real crisis. I mean, the, when this all began in November of last year, when Russia began to get very uppity and began issuing demands and ultimatums, it was a completely artificial crisis. I mean, Ukraine wasn't about to join NATO. There was no membership offer at all. Uh, there was never any discussion of uh, U.S. missiles being installed in Ukraine. And Ukraine and NATO have been militarily co cooperating within NATO and bilaterally with countries like Canada, United Kingdom, U.S., since the mid-1990s. So there's nothing new there. So this is more to do with Putin's state of mind um, and, and also his, his nationalistic drive. 
I think there is a very different Vladimir Putin to even in 2014, because there he was more restrained than he is today. He invaded and occupied Crimea in 2014, but didn't really send troops through into sort of eastern southern Ukraine at the time. It was only really in, in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine where Russia in, invaded because its local proxy forces were on the verge of being defeated. But, but Russia stopped, didn't go any further. So something has happened since then. Some people talk about Putin being very isolated during the COVID pandemic. I mean, he's very paranoid. He comes from that KGB background with a lot of paranoia, conspiracy theories. And you see that ridiculous long table that he always sits on <laughs> with, um, with, with, with visiting dignitaries. So there's that aspect to it all. Um, he also got very fed up with not getting anywhere with the so-called Minsk peace process, which was in, 2000, in late 2014, early 2015, two peace agreements were signed in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, to try and end the fighting in eastern Ukraine. Putin and or the, or the Kremlin had always tried to use these peace agreements to get their strategic goals in Ukraine. And their strategic goals have always been what I call Bosnianization and Finlandization. Bosnianization meaning a very weak central government, very weak federalized state with a lot of Russian interference and de facto a Russian satellite state. A Finlandization means that uh, no, no real integration, no cooperation with the European Union, NATO, US, Western countries, and um, de facto country within Russia's sphere of influence, what Russia calls the Russian world, the Ruskimir. Um, no Ukrainian leader, including the current one, Volodymyr Zelensky, who's quite moderate, he's a centrist, uh, would ever agree to such brazen Russian demands. Um, and so they got increasingly fed up with, uh, with, with the current president, Zelensky. Particularly, I think, relations deteriorated in 2021, when Zelensky domestically went after some uh, pro-Russian uh, politicians who were close to Putin, somebody called Viktor Medvedchuk, and also closed down four pro-Russian television channels that were run or owned by Medvedchuk. That got Putin's back up. Um, Putin takes things very personally. Yeah. Uh, going after his man in Ukraine, this Mr. Medvedchuk, was seen as basically a slap on the face for Vladimir Putin, as it were. And then also, um, I think in, in, in August of 2021, uh, Zelensky launched something called the Crimean Platform, which was an international forum to publicize the issue of the occupation, illegal occupation of Crimea. That didn't go down well in Russia at all, in the Kremlin at all, because Russian leaders have, have, have always said there's no discussion about Crimea. It's off the table. You know, we can discuss everything else like, you know, East Ukraine and this, that and the other, but Crimea is, is simply finished business for, in their eyes. So those are the kind of the immediate factors. But the deeper problem is the kind of evolution of nationalism inside Russia during Putin's 22-year rule as president and prime minister. And what what's happened is that there's been a, a stagnation, a kind of a reversal back to pre-Soviet Tsarist Russian nationalism. And the difference between Tsarist Russian nationalism and Russian nationalism in the USSR are very significant for Ukraine, because in the USSR, it was, it was a country made up of 15 republics, one of which was Ukraine, and the Soviet regime wasn't a very, I'm, I'm not a fan of the Soviet Union at all, but the Soviet Union 
recognize legally um, the existence of, of a republic called Ukraine, a Soviet republic, mm. and the existence of a separate Ukrainian people to Russians, and the existence of a Ukrainian language. Ukraine was a founding member of the UN in 1945. It's been a member of the UN nearly 80 years. Stalin managed to wrangle three seats at the UN in 1945. Tsarist Russian nationalism, which is now dominant in the Kremlin in, in Moscow, is a very different animal. It completely denies the existence of Ukrainians and Belarusians, and it claims that there are three branches to what, what they call a pan-Russian nation. So Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians. And Putin has repeatedly said for, for over a decade, Russians and Ukrainians are one people. That's the sort of nationalistic aspect of the driving factor behind this. And added to that is Putin's fantasy world, because they live in a, a kind of an information bubble that is not reality. So to give an example, the reason why Russian forces are doing so badly in Ukraine is because they really did believe that, that living in Ukraine are not Ukrainians, but little Russians were going to greet the Russian liberating forces with flowers. Mm. Um, because uh, Ukraine has been sort of captured by these terrible Ukrainian nationalists or American puppets. Yeah. And we're going to come in and liberate these little Russians from this evil uh, nationalists and American puppet masters, as it were. This is all fantasy world. It simply doesn't, it's not true. And, and so Russian forces have been getting a hammering from Ukrainians irrespective of whether they speak Ukrainian, Russian, or both languages. It, just, it doesn't matter at all. They're Ukrainians. I mean, there are many examples in the world, uh, Austria, Germany, you know, Ireland, Britain, uh, Canada, the US, throughout Latin America, where countries can speak the same language, but they are different national identities. Um, but that obviously doesn't, doesn't factor in in Moscow. They don't understand the concept of Russian-speaking Ukrainian patriotism. So... All of these factors are there, which makes it a very complicated answer to your question. And it also makes it very complicated for, for people in the West to, to, to get their heads around, you know, what the hell's going on here? This is, a, this is the 21st century in Europe, and we're seeing this sort of late 19th century Russian nationalism dominating an invasion of, of the country. And it's leading to massive demoralization of Russian, Russian soldiers in Ukraine, because they arrive with one set of myths and and then they see reality on the ground that it's simply not like they were told it's going to be. Yeah, thank you very much for that. You mentioned a little bit earlier about Russian nationalism. Since Putin came to power, there seems to be a kind of growing Cold War mentality, Russia versus the West. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how that mindset sort of appears to have dominated Russian foreign policy? Well, the, there's a number of factors here as well. Um, Russia and China both have nationalisms that are angry with the West, what some academics call resentment. The, the Chinese nationalists and Russian nationalists or, and, and their identities believe that the West never treated them with respect, that they always sort of looked down upon them, kind of didn't treat them as equals. And they believe this has been going on since the 19th century. So that inferiority complex is there both for Chinese and for Russian nationalists. And it leads to xenophobia, anti-Americanism, and, and an attempt to sort of divide or bring down Western structures, particularly in the case of Russia, mm. because Russia is the declining power, not China. 
And so China can just sit it out, it thinks. And, you know, down the road, they're going to be pretty high up anyway. So they're not really that concerned about being disruptive at the moment. But Russia is an angry, declining power. And of course, the sanctions, that these massive sanctions the West has introduced, is going to make that decline even faster now. But Russia is a, is a, is a, is a political system for the last two decades, for over the last two decades, um, dominated by the former intelligence services of the USSR. Yeah. For academics, they call it a militocracy. Um, and so former KGB officers, you know, now since 1991, either in the FSB domestic service or SVR foreign service, plus military high command, they're the ones running the country um, where they have fused politics, business and intelligence services. And this militocracy um, doesn't start with a, with a clean plate, as it were, with a, the fresh plate. It obviously brings in its own mentalities and hang-ups and, and views of the outside world that existed in the KGB in the 70s and 80s. And hence, they have their inferiority complexes, they have their anger, their Putin has still not gotten over the disintegration of the USSR 30 years ago. He hasn't got over it at all. Mm. And all of those factors combine into a very angry and, and, and bitter view of, of the Western world. They feel that it's the West that's attacking them, that they're not attacking the West, that the West is attacking them. And this has been, this has been around for a long time. In February 2007, Vladimir Putin made a quite well-known, very angry speech to the Munich Security Conference, where he de facto declared war on the West. We chose to ignore that speech in the West. Barack Obama, in, when he came to power in 2008, launched a reset of relations with Russia, ignoring that speech and ignoring Russia's invasion of Georgia. So we've been wanting to ignore what Russia's been telling us that they're at war with us for a long period of time, even after Litvinenko was killed in London in 2006, even after the Skripal chemical warfare attack in Salisbury in 2018. We've wanted to carry on, as it were, not accepting reality. Russia has... Um, or the Kremlin, which is dominated by this kind of mentality, um, this Cold War mentality, has continued the Soviet goal of undermining, dividing, attacking um, Western institutions, particularly NATO, but not just NATO, the European Union as well. And, and, and it's been doing that in all sorts of ways, for example, financing extreme right-wing political parties mm. in, in Europe so that who, uh, who support sort of Brexit-type um, withdrawal of their countries um, from the EU. They completely misjudged it on this occasion because the West was very united in its sanctions against, against Russia. But they believe that if they kept, kept pushing and, and dividing the West that eventually it would collapse. They were of the opinion, like the Chinese, that the West was in, in terminal decline. The West was divided, that the, the, the West was, you know, gone. And what they associate the West with is, in their eyes, a unipolar American-led world, which they want to replace with a, what they call a multipolar world. Now, how this relates to Ukraine is very, very easy to understand, because in the Kremlin, they really did believe, really do believe, that Ukraine was a U.S. puppet state. There was a revolution in Ukraine in 2014 called the Euromaidan Revolution, 
in the Kremlin. They believed that the Americans would took control of Ukraine, created the U.S. puppet state, and that Russia is fighting the U.S. and the West in Ukraine. That this is a proxy war against the West. That now Russia is invading Ukraine to cleanse it of these so-called crazy nationalists who are in hock with Americans and and the West. And um, and so all of these factors are, are, are interlinked. You have this massive xenophobia. Now a final factor to take to think about is that. The dictatorship, and it is a dictatorship now in Russia, that's been created cannot exist without enemies. I mean, those dictatorships never can exist without enemies, mm. both domestic, you know, like uh, opposition movements and and such like. They're all enemies of the state. They're fifth colonists, etc. And external enemies, and the external enemies of the West, uh, NATO, EU, uh, US, Britain, and that creation of a fortress Russia is something that they excel in. Um, that's how they try to rally and mobilize Russians to, you know, stand up for the flag, as it were. Um, so all of those factors are, are, are interconnected. And to the previous point about nationalists, because Russian nationalists like Putin are adamant that Ukraine has no choice, has no right to make a choice of its own. It's part of the Russian world part of the Russian sphere of influence, and therefore Americans, EU, NATO, etc., should get out of Ukraine. You mentioned Barmer's famous recess of Russian relations. What could the West maybe have done better, if anything, with regards to Russia? Oh, this, this is a, a big question, of course. I mean, for one thing, just, just to accept as reality what the Russians were telling them. I mean, Russia's been saying for a, over a decade that the West is its enemy. And, and every time Western governments have tried to do a reset, and there's been about three or four from George Bush onwards, um, they've always failed because Russia understands a reset um, in the following way. You reset. We have done nothing wrong. <laughs> and you can't have a reset if one side says we've, we're angels and the other side are, are the devils. Mm. So... I think there's, there has, there's been this starry-eyed uh, view of Russia. Um, there was this, I think, a starry-eyed view of Russia and China that uh, with economic, uh, greater sort of growth of a market economy, integration into global globalization, that these countries would become quote-unquote normal countries. And that's not happened in both cases. There was a very weak responses every time Putin launched military adventures, whether it was in Georgia in 2000. After Georgia was invaded in 2008 by Russia, there was, there was no sanctions by the West. Russia, Russia completely got away with it. Mm -hmm. um, in 2014, the sanctions launched against Russia for its invasion and occupation of Crimea and military warfare in eastern Ukraine were, were very timid, very, very timid. So, um, an expert described them as something like three out of 10 compared to what we have now of, of eight, nine out of 10. So we've been very weak in pushing back. We've been very accept accepting of dirty money from Russia. You know, the joke about how London was renamed Londongrad or Moscow on the Thames. Yeah. And so that aspect is there. That influx of dirty money was a strategically perceived concept in Moscow. It was a way to buy up elites in the West. The spread of that money was very important in, in, in a way that Russia tried to sort of 
um, spread its influence in the West. I always joke that Russia's biggest export was never oil or gas, it was corruption. (laughs) And thank God Nord Stream 2 has been cancelled now because of these sanctions, because that would have spread corruption even even bigger. Mm. But we were willing to take all that. I mean, you know, think of, I mean, now, it's only now that oligarchs in London are getting a bit worried about the British government. But, you know, Boris Johnson gave Mr. Lebedev, the owner of the Independent and Evening Standard, a peerage, for Christ's sake, over the advice of MI5 not to give it. Yeah. So all of that was there. Um, Obama is, Obama's name is a dirty word in both Georgia and Ukraine, because not only did he do nothing in response to Russia's invasion of Georgia, but in 2014, he he practically didn't do anything then either. And he vetoed the sending of military equipment to Ukraine from the US. Mm. Um, Which, ironically, Donald Trump, for all his faults, and all of his pallying up to Putin, did not veto. So it's quite ironic. And, And of course, Biden, who was a member of the Obama team, has not done that at all. So things have changed. But Obama was very weak in, I think, generally international affairs. Remember his very weak red lines in Syria, mm. which weren't red lines. Yeah. I mean, in 2014, Ukraine were felt let down because, again, I'm not sure all your listeners know all this background, but in, in 1994, Ukraine agreed to give up the world's third largest nuclear weapon stockpile from the USSR. And um, uh, Ukraine had a massive military industrial complex in the Soviet Union. It had the biggest factory in the world that made nuclear weapons. And um, in return for which uh, was signed something called the Budapest Memorandum by the US, Britain, Russia, and then China and France added added their signatures later. Now, um, of course, Russia infringed that um, because Ukraine was supposed to get some sort of guarantees for its territorial integrity and sovereignty. Russia infringed that in 2014. But, you know, Cameron and Obama did nothing on this Budapest memorandum, did nothing to help Ukraine in 2014. It's only now that, or in the last sort of six months, that a lot of this military aid has been going to Ukraine. Mm. So I think the Western response has been extremely weak. And I think that was the reason why Vladimir Putin um, was miscalculated here because he expected it to be the same as in the past. Now it hasn't been. The, the, the sanctions that the West have introduced now are Iranian level sanctions and they're very, very massive. But the Kremlin was led to believe that based on past evidence that they're not, they're going to get away with it again. I mean, it's going to be, you know, a bit of a slap on the wrist, and that hasn't been the case. But we, we've sent out all these signals. I mean, I mean, just to give you one example, I mean, you know, after that horrible chemical attack in Salisbury in 2018, Britain kept giving out these so-called golden visas to Russian oligarchs, where, where you, if you pay in something like £2 million, uh, you get a golden visa, to a re- right to have residency in in England, in London. Mm. I mean, two million pounds for one of these oligarchs is, is pocket change, petty cash. So they continue giving those even after that horrible chemical attack. I mean, it's only now that those golden visas, that golden visa scheme, which was introduced by uh, Gordon Brown's government back, back way, way back in 1998, I think it was, um, has been cancelled. So it's taken, sadly, it's taken the Russian invasion of Ukraine for us to finally wake up and say, what the hell were we doing for, for over 15 years? Indeed. 
One thing that always fascinates me about Russia and these sort of situations and the acts of aggression that you've mentioned is how he, um, Putin seems to have fans in both the far right and far left of sort of Western politics. I don't know if you have any sort of insight on that. Well, um, in in some ways, the far left is easier to explain than the far right. You know, the Jeremy Corbyn's of this world, because their hatred of America, which is very very deep, um, leads them to be pro Kremlin, even though they are supposed to be socialists. And this guy in Moscow is is a mafiosi, who was about as close to socialism as you know, <laughs> as, yeah. as, as as nothing, as it were. So um, that's kind of easier to understand, and it's partly also to do with their links to the Soviet Union, because um, they probably, you know, in the past, prior to 1991, maybe um, subscribed to, say, communist newspapers that were funded by the USSR. So there's all that Soviet legacy, and, you, and uh, the anti-Zionism that you have in the far left amongst the Jerry McCorbinites, um, that has its origins in the Soviet Union as well. Because in the 70s and 80s, the, the Soviet Union really played on this anti-Zionism, which was just a camouflage anti-Semitism. Then that, then that was taken up by the far left in Europe, as it were, and when they began supporting Palestinian terrorist groups and this, that and the other, and in the name of anti-Zionism. Um, the far right is a bit more complicated, I think. I mean, I mean, that's a more recent phenomena, and that's more to do, I think, with just identity politics. I mean, Putin has promoted particularly since he came back to power in 2012, this very conservative or radical right-wing conservative agenda, attacking LGBT rights, um, supporting you know families, um, religion, um, the, the, the nation state, all of those kind of factors which, are, which have also played up in the minds of, of people on the far right that this is something that we have an affinity to. Linked to that is the is the growth of I think anti-establishment populist nationalism in the West, which is fed by which is supported by by Russia, either financially, like in France, or or in other ways, you know, with um, free media um, support and and um, and I mean a lot of what Russia is doing now it was done in the Soviet Union, but of course then there was no internet, so it's it's, it's now it's it's basically Soviet what in the Soviet Union was called active measures, now uh, information warfare or hybrid warfare, but on steroids, as it were. Yeah. Because you've got, you know, all these, well, you they had, act, I think they've been, Russia's slowly been taken off all these platforms, but Russia was able to amplify its voice on all these different platforms and promoting this kind of, um, you know, support for the nation state, anti-hostility to the EU, to the decline of national sovereignty, globalization, um, and this kind of macho image um, as well. S sometimes this sort of racist and, and anti-Semitic as well sometimes, because there's, there's often attacks against George Soros, um, the, the philanthropist from Hungary who's of Jewish background. So there, there was an association of Soros with globalization. So all of these factors are there for the far right. Uh, one of the biggest Recent examples is, of course, Donald Trump and the right of that rise of that populist nationalism in the in the Republican Party. Because what's what what happens is either either that far right kind of tendency takes over the center right, or it comes to power itself as a separate force. I mean, if if you've only got a two party system like Britain and the US, then it's difficult for another party. You know, UKIP would never get to power in in Britain. 
So, so you, you have to kind of penetrate the centre-right. If it's in the proportional system, like on continental Europe, then these far-right parties, like I live in Holland, so the far-right parties can get 25% in a proportional system. Mm. And that sort of populist nationalism has come to the fore. Of course, immigration is a factor. And there in Europe, more, more Islamic, uh, Muslim immigration in US more Hispanic, um, I think. So all of these factors are there and Russia's been playing on it and propagating it as part of that traditional Soviet agenda of dividing and undermining Western societies and NATO and the EU. Thank you. So has Putin overplayed his hand in invading Ukraine and could this be the end of his leadership in Russia? <laughs> I think I'd make a lot of money if I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> I th he's definitely miscalculated on three fronts. He's mm. miscalculated vis-a-vis -vis his own population. This is not a popular war in Russia. It's not like Crimea. Crimea for, for Russians is a bit like Kosovo for Serbs. It, it, it's, it's, it's a very emotional and very close to sort of Russian national identity and, and nationalism. Whether, it, whether that's right or not is a separate discussion, but that's how they feel. So in 2014, Putin had a lot of support um, for, for annexing Crimea and the Public opinion polls, well, there's one particular one uh, in Russia that's tracked that um, support for the annexation of Crimea in Russia has remained steady at about 86%. So I'm assuming he probably thought this would be another uplift for his popularity by doing, you know, war's a great thing for dictators. They love wars. Um, but that's not the case. This, is, this war will not be popular in Russia for all sorts of reasons. Uh, firstly, it will kill a lot of Russian soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, secondly... Uh, Ukraine is just too big to occupy. I mean, you, you would need probably like half the Russian army to occupy Ukraine. I mean, it's just a bigger territory. And in invading, you've actually turned away, you've made enemies of a lot of people who were traditionally would have, would have friends in Russia, you know, like Ukrainian, Ukrainians who are Russian speakers who would traditionally would be in support of some kind of close relations with Russia. Now that's all gone by your actions. And inside Russia, you see this growing momentum of protests, um, you see, which will grow, which will increase. I have no doubt about that. You see a petition of signed by over, over a million Russians. I mean, Ukraines are playing this very well when, when they, when they capture prisoners and they captured a lot of them. Some of them have deserted themselves. They put them on TV. They, they tell them to ring home with their mobile phones yeah. and then people in the village spread the information around. I mean, you cannot stop information getting out, even in a totalitarian autocratic system like Russia. I remember the 1980s when when the Soviet Union invaded Af Afghanistan, and um, this was a totalitarian Soviet Union. And even then, information got back about Soviet casualties in Afghanistan. And, and that was one of the factors, plus many others, um, that led to um, the Soviet Union unraveling. People said, why the hell are, we, are our kids dying in this faraway place, Afghanistan? Now, that was 15,000 people dead. There's already practically 12,000 dead in 10 days in Ukraine. Yeah. And that, is gonna, that, word, that information is going to spread. And when it spreads, it's going to be a major problem. So that's one miscalculation with vis-a-vis -vis his own population. The second miscalculation was with the Ukrainians. He really... They were absolutely convinced of their own mythology and nationalist mythology and propaganda that Ukrainians are little Russians and they will be greeting them with flowers as liberators. Well, obviously, that's not happened. <laughs> they, they've been greeting them with um, British, American, Swedish and Turkish weapons. 
and lethally. I mean, I watch these videos every day and the amount of destruction is huge of Russian military equipment and, of course, Russian mil military casualties. And then the, the third miscalculation we've, we've kind of touched on is, is, West, is the West. They really did believe that the West would be a walkover, that they would, you know, they would introduce very weak sanctions, like in 2014, the West would be divided. France and Germany are traditionally pro-Russian countries. Um, and so they would always try to water these things down. That's not the case. We've seen a revolution in German foreign policy. Mm. I mean, can you can you imagine the symbolism of Germany supplying weapons to Ukraine to kill Russians? I mean, this is this is mind-boggling. And Germany cancelled Nord Stream two. Think of the billions that Russia has poured into building Nord Stream two pipeline, and now it's all gone, and it will not come back. That's it. Mm. There's no way that. This is going to be somehow reopened down the road. That's it, because R Germany will have to rethink its energy policies. So Russia's miscalculated domestically inside Ukraine and with the West. And, um, and so, yes, I think those that believed, like myself, that Putin was president for life, which is what he was, he built a system where you can't leave office and, and go work an allotment growing potatoes. I mean, that's not going to happen because there's no honor amongst thieves. You're going to get a knife in your back if you retire. Yeah. So you've got to stay in power forever. That assumption is now gone. I mean, he changed the constitution back in two years ago so that he could stay in power until 2036. But we'll see now. I think, I think it's a big question mark what his future holds. I mean, there are all sorts of rumors about his health. He doesn't seem very kind of healthy. I mean, I've watched three press conferences of his in the last 10 days or so, and it doesn't look, no, it doesn't look rational. I mean, it's like, he's, it's like he's zombified, staring at the camera, very angrily talking, as it were. Um, and I watched a, a press conference, uh, work, a speech he gave last Friday um, to the Russian Security Council, and I watched it on French international television. And, and after he gave the speech, the French commentators said, he's living on a parallel universe. Mm, mm. These are French commentators. So there's something going on there as well. Maybe it's the effect of the COVID isolation. Who knows? I mean, and the Americans are coming out with all sorts of investigations into the state of his health and the state of his mind. But yes, I don't think you're going to get many people now betting on him staying president for life. No. No. A lot of people are obviously describing as Putin backed into a corner. Is there something that could be done to persuade Putin to stop what he's doing? Well, <laughs> the sort of golden parachute kind of thing. Um, yeah. I wonder. I mean, I was never an optimist about any kind of negotiations with Russia since the crisis began in November. I thought that they're always going to get nowhere. And um, I read, a, read an article by an Irish psychologist who called what Putin has the hubris syndrome, hubris syndrome. Mm. And he said it's, it's practically impossible to negotiate with people like that because they're so narcissistic, so full of themselves, and they think that they're right and everybody else is an idiot. And also that KGB mentality also doesn't understand the concept of compromise. I mean, they could have, got, they could have had a deal. Uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, was elected in April 2019. He, he's a moderate. He's, he's Jewish background and a Russian speaker from East Ukraine. He's not a crazy nationalist. Mm. They could have negotiated some compromise with him. But of course, Russia doesn't understand compromise. It understands you put your hands up and surrender. 
That's what it demands. I mean, they could have got some kind of, I wouldn't have agreed with it, but they could have got some deal with Zelensky back then in 2019. By 2021, it was too late. So I'm not optimistic. There again, you know, diplomats can pull rabbits out of hats where analysts like ourselves are always less optimistic about. You know, I I grew up with Northern Ireland um, and I never believed that would be resolved and Tony Blair somehow resolved it, right? So it is potentially possible. What would be the contours? Well, I mean, um, I think that Putin would have to be forced to back down by massive, ca- I mean, massive casualties. I mean, the American policy is obviously the same as what it had in the 1980s, bleed Russia dry. Mm. The more that Russia faces in terms of destruction of its equipment, military equipment, the more that it has of military casualties, the more likely that Putin will rethink what he's doing. That was a strategy in the 80s with supporting the Mujahideen against Soviet forces, and now it's the same strategy in, in, in Ukraine. If this continues at this pace of number of casualties, this is inevitably going to impact on, on Putin's standing and on on that. So that could certainly um, force him to rethink and to say to come to some kind of compromise agreement. Um, but how then do you have to pull out all those troops? Who's going to pay to repair all that destruction? Mm. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars here. Yeah, sure. Some of that money will come from, you know, IMF, or Western International Financial Organizations, but presumably Russia will be guilty of, will have to pay for some of that. So I, I think I think there are many many questions that we we don't know. But I, the at the rate of the destruction of Russian military equipment and at the rate of the number of Russian casualties, I cannot see this going on for such a huge amount of time because it's just. I mean, the Russian forces are getting pulverized. Mm. Added to that, you have to see, and you see this with the. When you watch interviews with Russian prisoners of war, they haven't got they haven't got that drive in their belly. They haven't got that sort of you know they think they're doing what they're doing is right. That they the, the fire in the belly that they had in 2014 is not there. Mm. Many of them are angry they were lied to. They were not told what the reason what why they were sent to Ukraine. Um, many of them were told nothing. They were on exercises. One and then one night somehow they they've crossed the border. So um, people, there are cases, many cases where they've actually just simply got out of their vehicles and started walking back to Russia. (laughs) I mean, this is not an army with fire in the belly that think, yes, we're absolutely supporting this liberation of Ukraine from these Nazis, or as Putin calls it, drug addicts and Nazis who run Ukraine. You know, yeah. Putin's calling for the, says that his troops are supporting the denazification of a country led by a Jewish president. <laughs> mm. So I think that Putin, we'll see, we'll see. I, I, I think that there's going to be some sort of crisis in this Russian military operation, I think, um, very soon. Well, a million dollar question. How do you think this is going to end? Uh, I think with the collapse of... Um, the the slow slow stagnation and then then the sort of disintegration of the Russian invasion force. Um, yes, you will still have the you know the horrible aspect of of this invasion is not so much the troops on the ground because they're getting really hammered by Ukrainian forces. 
but it's the missiles and the and the and, and the bombs from from planes. Some of those have been been knocked out, but I mean those are the ones that are causing the destruction and the killing of civilians and the refugee crisis. So that that and those pilots, you know, they're high up. They just bomb. I mean, they don't care what what's happening below, as it were. Um, so I think the I think it will be a slow slow stagnation of Russian forces, which is already happening. And then eventually some kind of uh, disintegration. The, the war effort will just crumble. I can't see how this attrition rate can continue indefinitely. Uh, yes, we have to be careful because that level of casualties, 12,000 12, in 10 days, for any Western country like Britain, it would, the government would have to resign. This would be a scandal. It would be a crisis. Mm. In the Kremlin, they give they don't give a hoot, they don't give a toss about human life. Putin is a sociopath. He doesn't care about the deaths of his own people or foreigners. So that will have less of an impact on his calculations, but I think it will have on the Russian population. And this information is getting there. I forgot to mention that uh, this anonymous, the anonymous hacker group, mm. has managed to hack into Russian TV. And yesterday evening, they plastered statements across Russian TV channels saying, why are you committing genocide in Ukraine? Mm. And, and put video footage of destruction of, of towns. I mean, this is supposed to be a country where the media is tightly controlled by the state, but these hacker groups have managed to, have managed to get in there. So I think all of this is going to disintegrate or, and stagnate um, this Russian invasion. Uh, I... I Cannot see this going on for years. I mean, in this, in Afghanistan, it took eight years. Yeah, it was fifteen thousand lives over eight years, but we we were already practically there, twelve thousand. One thing I've noticed is um, there appears to be some little bit of dissent going on in the FSB at the moment. You've had a whistleblower, yes, uh, who's published this letter, and you also may have had the FSB helped um, Zelensky avoid assassination on three occasions. Yeah, we don't know about the assassination. Um, um, I mean, the, allegedly the FSB did two things for Ukraine. Uh, prevent an assassination and provide information to the Ukrainians who then pulverized and destroyed a Chechen special forces, um, um, I think quite a large battalion of, yeah. of, of, of troops. Is that true or is it Ukrainian disinformation spreading an attempt to sow dissension within the FSB. So they're running around looking for spies, right? Yeah. Or traitors, as it were. Yeah. It could be either. I don't know. Um, certainly the, the, the article in today's Times and what I read on the, on, in social media yesterday about the FSB leak, to me, the way I would read that is by thinking that the, 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 the security forces, the military and the intelligence services, probably did have more doubts about doing this military operation for all sorts of reasons. Um, they probably had better understanding of the Ukraine's putting up a fight. Secondly, Ukraine has the third largest army in Europe, and that's just the army, never mind the National Guard plus the territorial defense and reservists. Um, and, and thirdly, um, Ukraine is just a huge country. I mean, you, you, it's not like Georgia or Moldova. The southeastern border of South Ossetia is about 50 kilometers from Tbilisi. Yeah. 
Donetsk is 750 kilometers from Kiev. To go from one end of Ukraine to the other is 2,000 kilometers. I mean, this is a huge, huge place. You need a huge amount of troops to occupy it. Okay, even if Zelensky's kicked out of uh, Kiev and he has to flee and they take Kiev, which I think is going to be very difficult, but even if they take Kiev, who are they going to install? Mm. I mean, he's going to have zero legitimacy. And I'll, I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if he'd be dead in within a month from an assassination. <laughs> so um, yeah. I think that they were discussing all of these different problem factors, and mm. they were therefore more, far more cautious in saying, hold on, you know, why don't we just stick to our, what we've been doing the last eight years, which is hybrid warfare. Mm. And there they got away with a lot more. I mean, that was is where it, it's difficult to understand Putin because Russia's strengths were nuclear weapons and, and fighting in the gray zone, the hybrid warfare zone. And because when you when in Russia was doing stuff in the hybrid warfare zone, the gray zone, a lot of the times the West ignored it. For example, it's only now the West is, is pointing at Russia and blaming Russia for cyber warfare attacks. But you know, previously they were saying, oh, we don't know who's behind this. We, we have no proof. Yeah. So I would think that these Russian intelligence services would be saying, let's stick to what we're good at, the gray zone. And they did all sorts of stuff in the gray zone, you know, hacking, cyber warfare, assassinations, election interference, and this, that, and the other. Why don't we stick to that? But I think they were overruled, um, and that's why I think there is discontent there. They were overruled by Putin, who, because of his state of mind, and because he has been obsessed with taking back Ukraine for a long time, Mm. they said, no, we're going to have to go for broke. And so he then moves to overt invasion as opposed to covert hybrid warfare and that's where he comes unstuck that's why he miscalculates because we can see that the russian army isn't that great actually um um but you know russia doing hybrid warfare is probably a lot better all of these different activities so i think that's what it and so the blame here lies in putin's state of mind putin's obsession with ukraine putin's obsession with being the gatherer of russian lands this is this is ancient sort of he wants to go into history as the gatherer of russian lands this is how he came back to power in 2012 crimea was the first belarus is second and now ukraine um but he's actually going to be the the person who didn't gather ukraine but actually made ukraine completely anti-russian so i I suspect that was the reason for the for the whistleblowers and for the discontent and i'm sure there are probably people in the fsb thinking we told you so. We told you this is going to be a shit show. I mean, this is going to be really bad. And they're not really... I mean, after 10 days of an invasion, they've only captured one city. That's not exactly great going, no. No, indeed. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add that maybe we haven't mentioned that's important to you or any sort of final thoughts? I think that the only probably area because we we're british as it were i mean i think that um britain has been outstanding during this crisis in supporting ukraine militarily and in, and i think diplomatically and and, uh, and other areas um but there's a disconnect in britain between that aspect of shall we say global britain post brexit you know new foreign policy mm. and the 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 less w- the lower willingness at home to sort of wrap up London grad and the whole dirty money thing. Mm. 
And we have to understand that all of these things are connected. I mean, uh, big business, politics, and the intelligence services in Russia are all interconnected. And these are all these have always been national security threats to Britain. Now we're beginning to understand that in Britain. But we, but even in with these new heavy sanctions, Britain seems to be less willing to apply them to say oligarchs than the European Union and the U.S. So, for example, why is it why is it only in the European Union that they're taking control of yachts of 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 or nationalizing property in, in yachts of uh, oligarchs? Mm. So, I think that we should, it should we should connect the dots, as it were, that all of this is interconnected. That Putin's been using for a very long time corruption and the export of corruption to penetrate Western societies to. And and when elites have been corrupted, that's when you have populist anti-establishment politicians who then go out to the voters and say, look at these corrupt elites. We have to be hostile towards them. So Russia is very good at doing all of that. And we should understand that all of these factors are interconnected. And, and, and Britain should have, a, I think, should be more determined to to return the great name of London to London. It should no longer be called London Grad or Moscow on the Thames. Mm. I love London. I lived there for 20 years. Um, and it's a great old and international city. It's the time we, we, we took it back from these, this dirty Russian money. Yeah. And I've seen some suspicious yachts. And I live in London. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They could be the first foray of an invasion force for all we know. <laughs> That's one way of getting him. Well, um, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Well, I work at the Henry Jackson Society. It's a think tank in London. Um, I'm a research fellow there in charge of Russia and Eurasia. Go to the Henry Jackson website. Um, we're always publishing papers. We have one coming out um, today or tomorrow on the um, whole question of of how we should hit back with Russia with a no-fly zone over Ukraine, or at least parts of Ukraine, to help humanitarian corridor, to help, help refugees. And we should also, secondly, be declaring Vladimir Putin and his Kremlin allies as war criminals in the international criminal court and thirdly we should declare russia a terrorist state alongside north korea syria and iran mm -hmm. so that's the paper coming out tomorrow i think um, or maybe today or tomorrow and later in the week we have i have another paper coming out to our think tank um, looking at china taiwan because one of the ramifications of this global crisis it's not a crisis just in ukraine this global crisis is that china is watching us China is watching how the West react, responds to this. Now, if the West had responded weakly as, uh, to this crisis, as Russia believed it would, then that would have sent a signal to China it could get away with occupying Taiwan. Mm. So China's now seen the West has been quite united and determined to, to push back against Russia. So that's actually good for Taiwan. So China is going to say, oh, we can, we can wait. We can wait. There's no rush, right? Mm -hmm. And China's kind of slowly distancing itself from Russia. It's um, It hasn't supported Russia at the UN. It's abstained. It hasn't voted with Russia. So that comparison is there. And um, because, you know, all international politics is signals. It's sending signals all the time. And the West on this occasion finally has sent a united and determined signal that this has crossed so many red lines. It's untrue. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.